0: Welcome back to another episode of Me and Mr. A's. I'm Nick, the me part, and right there is Mr. A's. Yes, my name is Daryl. No, I was not named after Daryl
1: Hall. My parents were not that cool. (laughs) The topic of today's show is something that we're calling strange obsessions, which sounds a little bit like something you might find at the Hustler store. But that's not where we're going with it. Everybody kind of has their their musical wheelhouse, you know, whether they like pop, whether they like rock, jazz, country, whatever. Even if you like multiple musical disciplines, you probably have kind of your comfort zone. And then there are those artists or whatever that just don't seem to make any sense, but you like them anyway. <laughs> And so that's what a strange obsession is, by our definition, for the purposes of this show. And that's what uh, we're going to be talking about. Those artists that even we can't really explain how we came to like them, why we like them, but (laughs) we just do.
0: Yes. And we have a guest
1: in the studio today. (laughs) We have a black cat named Ash who's very curious about what we're doing. So if uh, we seem a little distracted, it's because he's taking turns climbing all over us.
2: Ah, the, pain, the whore. Ah.
1: So oh. where would you like to start?
2: Um
1: <laughs> I can start Go ahead.
0: At the beginning.
1: Knock yourself out.
0: Uh first one up is for me, Sonny Sharrock. He is a avant garde jazz guitarist who's uh I, I, the way I found out about him was that he was doing the theme song for Space Ghost Coast to Coast, and they put out a CD when I was working at a CD shop. And I heard the guitarist playing, and I'm like, holy fuck, that guy's amazing. (laughs) And so I had no idea who he was, and I just said, okay, I have to, you know, hear more about this guy. And it, it turns out that he's been... Writing the fringes of of jazz for well, he was writing them for a while. He's dead now, so but he uh, he was.
1: Now he's just writing the fringes of the fringe.
0: <laughs> was the was the soundtrack album
1: all him, or was his only track on it I, the I, the main theme?
0: I think he was the only the only track on there was him was doing the theme, and okay. I there was other was I, all sorts of weird people and like probably the guests. The the show was the precursor to everything that's on uh, a comedy adult or, swim uh, adult swim so it was uh, animated they, versions of space ghost which was a 70s cartoon
1: is that right he was probably the 60s he's one of those second tier Hanna barbera characters sort of like how they have Har- harvey birdman attorney at law and a lot of the youngsters probably don't realize that that is based on an actual superhero <laughs> named birdman <laughs> yeah no space ghost is kind of from the birdman school and they made him a uh, kind of a, a pompous talk show host, right?
0: Yes, and he would interview people like uh, Ozzy Osbourne and Seth Green, and uh, you know all sorts of weird people. And I think those people might have done something for the the album that was out.
1: Now, Charac, uh, about the time that Space Ghost was on, which that premiered like in the mid nineties, I think mm-hmm. he was already in his fifties or sixties, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. And he's one of those guys that, like you said, had been on the fringes. And was it, was it because he was so open to rock? So he was so open to rock so the jazz people didn't take him seriously. But because he had his roots in jazz, the rock people didn't necessarily know who he was. Do you think that's what the story was?
0: I think he was just odd. <laughs> I mean. Because didn't he work with Bill Laswell a lot? Right in that 90s period, that was kind of what his, you know, resurrection. I assume that's probably how he got the Space Ghost gig. Just because he was coming back, making albums with him. He'd done something uh, with uh, Material, and he'd done other uh, Blaswell projects. And they also worked in a a band that I'm going to talk about later called Last Exit. Because
1: Bill Laswell, for folks who don't know, I mean, he's... That's a whole other show, but uh, I guess the most succinct way I can put it is he is the producer who brought the guitarist Buckethead to prominence. <laughs> so that kind of gives you an a little taste of, of Bill Aswell's O'Viewer, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> I'm not French.
0: Yes, but so he, he didn't have a, he was very, he, uh, I play guitar and i put out an instrumental guitar album and this is you personally you're talking personally
1: about. Yes. you're not speaking as sonny Sharrock. no 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 you no. nick but
0: he but th- he influenced how i did it um because of what he did uh, he he was very I, I would say he had a very emotional playing style but it wasn't always Um, uh, boy it, it wasn't always correct I mean, he kind of left in weird side notes when he, when his guitar scronked a bit, he just sort of worked with it. <laughs> he was very improvisational, but incredibly emotional in his guitar playing. And I think that worked whether you worked in rock or whether you worked in jazz, but he never really said, you know, All right, as far as I can tell in, you know, uh, His music, he never really said, Okay, I'm definitely a rock guy or I'm definitely a jazz guy. He just played with whoever wanted to play with him.
1: And what do you do? You know much about his either his backstory or kind of how his his career evolved? Because he is. He's one of those guys that if you read Rolling Stone you, know, you see, I mean, he, that's Rolling Stone's a major publication. I mean, it's not as though you had to be reading fanzines. Every now and again, you'd read about mm-hmm. Sonny Chirac. So, I mean, how much do you really know about the guy, or is it just pretty much I, his I music? really
0: only know his albums. I mean, I, I've listened to pretty much everything he's done, and including the... Uh, the he, he had some albums in the early 60s or, you know, mid to late 60s where he did with his wife, Linda, who I can only equate to... Yoko Ono. Oh, nice. So she never sang lyrics pretty much. I think there was one song where she actually sang it as a song because they did a cover. But other words, she used her voice as a, (laughs) as her own instrument (laughs) or weapon of mass annoyance. Um, and so, you know, yeah, she is, (laughs) those albums are not easy to listen to. I want to listen to it for his, uh, solo take on things but she's she kind of annoys me with her and,
1: and he was also incredibly prolific not only as a solo artist but as a sideman right
0: oh yeah i mean he worked with miles davis and pharaoh sanders and he did uh john uh i, I, I always want to say jim zorn who was the seattle's uh quarterback for seahawks jim zorn john zorn John, john john zorn. john zorn and so yeah he's he, he he played with oh he had the there's a one that I, that isn't on Spotify but he did one with the guitarist Nikki and I have no idea how to pronounce his last name it's it's like S K O P E T L I A T S but he sounds was, like he's from Iceland he was uh, on a Laswell label yeah so I don't know, I don't think I've ever seen him do anything with uh, Buckethead but that would have been a hell of a combo <laughs> so were the Laswell years your favorite period. Actually, he did solo stuff, um, in the, uh, mid or early and mid nineties that were, uh, high life and live in New York, which was the Sunny Chirac band, not just Sonny Chirac sees the rainbow and guitar guitar is all him. He he doesn't do any other... It's all him playing guitar, multi-track guitar parts. And it's amazing. He's just... Uh, he's so talented in coming up with weird and creative ways to play melodic, interesting music. Is uh, he
1: doing one of those things where he's processing it so that it's also acting as percussion on a particular track, or it's, it's all well, just...
0: No, not really. I mean, it's really much more of a like... 200 guitarists playing together in a song Hmm. rather than, you know, he's making this sound like a drum and this sound like a bass. It really is just a a symphony of guitars.
1: Now, you know what's interesting is that that was the approach of Tom Schultz from Boston. Uh, Tom Schultz, was he just loved that kind of uh, (laughs) multi-tracked guitar kind of sound, and he actually invented something in the mid-'80s called the Rockman, which was a, an effects pedal, I think. I think so. That uh, somehow, I think it kind of took the single guitar going through it and just did something with audio processing to make it sound like 100 times bigger than it was. So even though, you know, Boston, commercial rock, um, Jurassic rock, very popular, everybody <laughs> knows Boston uh, and Sonny Chirac, completely different. Do you think there are any parallels to be made between the two? Even tenuous.
0: I think he would probably be the opposite because they both had, uh, Tom always seemed to have the, I want to be perfect because it would take like six years to make yes. an album because he had to have every note perfect. And I, I always kind of thought that that took a little bit away from what the guitar playing was because when you do 27 takes on a uh, on one song or one guitar part or one note, you're kind of taking away the emotion of by the song.
1: definition yes by definition on the 27th take the emotion is gone well
0: but i don't think i think he would disagree with that i think he would say that if it's the perfect note then it's the perfect song this is tom schultz, we're tom saying. schultz. he would be wrong and and that and that's where i think that sonny schrock is the exact opposite of that i think he just plays that he he has the idea he knows where he wants to go and he's just gonna let you ride with him on there to on his way to getting there was he a master of different guitar styles and different, different guitar tones? Because when you
1: think about uh, a lot of the famous guitarists, the first one that pops into my head, and I know it's completely not apropos, but it's Neil Sean from Journey. <laughs> when I think of Neil Sean's guitar playing, it is extremely lyrical, very melodic, and that's kind of his thing. Um, so did Chirac have a thing, or was it just sort of whatever mood he was in that day is how he played
0: uh, haphazard beauty. <laughs> I would say that's always because he, he never, he never just played the song. He never just go, you know, a D B C, you know, he never just played it obvious. He just seemed to go wherever. And if he, you know, and it, that's why, it was, that's why it was always so interesting to me is listening to his stuff. You never really know where you're going when you first hear it, but you, once you listen to it a few times, you're like, That seems exactly where you should go. It should go, you know, even with the bad, scronky notes, or even when he just, you know, goes off beat and starts wailing on the guitar and making it, you know, just noisy. It still seems to fit.
1: Would a casual listener listen to it and just say that that's noise?
0: His, this stuff, no. When you go to Last Exit, his his next band, then, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people will hate that stuff. But for this, it was, it was never melodic enough to get on the radio because he would always do something that would make it sound, yeah, you know, like you, when you hit sharp notes and you just sort of like, like and you just sort of, you, you give that little cringe. And you're like, oh, he, 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 he does stuff like that where it doesn't, uh, it doesn't quite fit into the normal, you know, uh category, which is what always influenced me about that is that he, he didn't go back and fix it. He didn't Tom Schultz, his guitar playing. Mm -hmm. He just let it ride. Hmm. And so if you were listening to something by him, uh, broken toys on guitar is a really wonderfully, uh, uh, beautiful little melody.
1: So broken toys is a song on an album called guitar,
0: right? The guitar. Guitar is the name of the album. Yeah, and uh, in High Life and uh, crap, I forgot the name of the other one. High Life and
1: Nick's addicted to <laughs> his iPad. He got all of his notes on his iPad, well, so I, I he gets he, the he's, the
0: he's skipping around and looking right now. If you wonder what he's doing, sees the rainbow is the other one. The both of those two came out in like eighty forty five. And so he predicted Skittles. That's <laughs> Taste the Rainbow, I'm sorry. Oh, thank you. Sorry. <laughs> Lost me on that one. I'm like, oh, where's he going? Uh, it, both of those have, like, my song from Seize the Rainbow and the title track from High Life are very melodic and tuneful, and High Life is really happy. It's The artwork on it is hilariously bad. <laughs> um, that's... <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow! It looks like somebody took a really bad promo photo and then did some lame Photoshop on it. He looks like BB King in that
2: picture.
0: Yeah. Try not to play the song.
2: That'll be thirty five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Ching. Yeah.
0: So yeah, he. But he's. He, it's a very happy album. I don't know what was going on in his life at there, but it's. It has. Uh, it's probably his most um, top forty esque melodic happy
1: content any evidence as far as you know that uh his playing's influenced by uh heavy drug use
0: or not you know i don't even know why he died but as far as but uh, I, I laswell it seemed uh there's references in some of the bands that he produced had like a druggy overtone but i've never heard that laswell or shirak or any of them had you, you know uh I was just curious,
1: because uh, Chirac's kind of cult status, I've always kind of put him in a category with Sid Barrett and Roki Erickson. Erickson. Uh, And, you know, both of them obviously are are big acid casualties, and I just didn't know if maybe there was a parallel
0: there or not. Definitely not in his playing. I mean, uh, unlike a uh, Sid Barrett, he seems coherent in his note playing ability. All right. (laughs) Well, we're going to move on. Yeah, why don't you take one?
1: Um, You had said uh, off air before we started doing the show that all your choices kind of have a theme. And a couple of mine have a theme, too, completely different from your theme. (laughs) Um, But I'll just kind of dive into it. My my first pick is Isaac Hayes. And it, it, it came... My interest... In Isaac Hayes, I'm pretty sure came from a confluence of my interest in funk, and which led me to an interest in black blaxplo- exploitation films from the '70s, and of course, a lot of people say the best black exploitation film ever made was Shaft, yeah. And of course, Isaac Hayes did the the soundtrack <laughs> for Shaft, um, but Isaac Hayes is one of those. Strange cases for people of our generation, I think, because his uh, his greatest success happened when you and I were very, very young and we kind of missed <laughs> the whole Isaac Hayes thing. And by the time Isaac Hayes entered our consciousness, he was uh, the guy who had the really thick beard that Rick Ross uses now. <laughs> um, and then he was chef on South Park. Oh, yeah. And then he would, you know, the Scientology guy. and But every now and again, you would you would just hear about this, you know, what a genius he was. And I just, you know, I kind of felt like I must be missing the boat here. And so, like I said, I, I've been interested in, in funk music for a long time. It started out with old school funk from the, the 80s and late 70s. And then it kind of started going backward from from there. And I'd kind of reached a point where... I had really lost interest in modern music and had pretty much carpet bombed the 80s as much as I possibly could. I mean, I just I've heard so much 80s music, I own so much 80s music. So I started working backwards and I thought, well, let me dip my toe into the 70s and see Makes what's sense. what's out there. And it just so happened that about the time this was going through my mind, they started doing some reissues of some of his some of Isaac Hayes' more classic albums. And it started with uh, Hot Buttered Soul. Um, which is his second album, but apparently his first album as what we know as Isaac Hayes. I mean, his very first album, I think is called Introducing Isaac Hayes. And I think he's wearing a top hat and tails. And he's doing like, <laughs> wow, doing like standards. Um, and then his very next album, all of a sudden he's not wearing a shirt and he's got the big thick rope chain on. <laughs> and he's inventing a different kind of uh, soul music. So I don't really know how much you know about Hayes, but uh, pretty much the line on him is that he started out as a staff writer at Stax Records, which is a big uh, southern soul label. Uh, Probably the closest parallel that we could make would be Motown, but Stax was a hell of a lot grittier.
0: Yeah, they were the – wasn't that like uh – I was trying to think of who's a uh, like uh, sitting on the dock of bay. Wasn't that like Otis Redding? Yeah, Otis
1: Redding, Sam and Dave, that kind of stuff. And so he was a, a staff writer for them and wrote a lot of. I know he wrote uh, "Hold On, I'm Coming." Uh, I'm pretty sure he wrote or co-wrote "Soul Man." Wow! So he wrote a lot of classics. Did not know that. And then is he? And he was also you know a session guy and a producer and arranger and all that kind of stuff. And the really interesting thing about his early solo albums is he would take the whitest music, the Carpenters, <laughs> Burt Bacharach, and do new arrangements of them and, and cover these songs as these these soul numbers. And I just, the more I got into it, I was like, I just, I need more. So <laughs> I started with Hot Buttered Soul and Black Moses. Did which, you ever hear the first album? i have not I really should but I haven't because I, I subsequently ended up buying pretty much everything of his that's still in print mm. um, but I've never sought that one out because it just scares me a little <laughs> um, so yeah, hot buttered soul and then there were two albums in the middle and then black Moses came out hot buttered soul and black Moses are considered kind of his big classic works. so I started with those uh, black Moses was a, a double album. Yeah. uh and then i got the shaft soundtrack which it was also a double album only three of the songs on that album are vocal tracks so it's oh, really it's
0: instrumental otherwise and it's it's really cool my and then parents just had it on lp <laughs> your parents had it on lp <laughs> yeah they had all sorts of weird stuff so you know, everything from uh john denver and uh olivia newton john to the shaft soundtrack so
1: and apparently, I know on, a, on at least one of the tracks, I don't know about the rest of the album, but on at least one of the tracks, his backing band was the bar hmm. on that Shaft soundtrack. Um, so after his kind of early 70s heyday, he started getting influenced by disco. And uh, people pretty much act like the the creative period ended after Black Moses, which I think came out in 73 or 74. But I've snapped up his entire 70s output and I don't really hear. To me, the uh, the 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 heavy disco influence didn't really start creeping in until about seventy eight or seventy nine. And there's a little bit of a, a little late on the uh, drop there. Yeah, there's a little <laughs> bit of a of a quality drop off. But uh, I mean, he's got. Like I said, I've got them all, and there are some days where I'm uh, I'm at work, and I've got all my Isaac Hayes CDs at work, and I'm just like, it's going to be an Isaac kind of a day. <laughs> and I just start playing them one after another. Hot Buttered Soul, uh, The Isaac Hayes Movement, um, To Be Continued, Black Moses, um, Juicy Fruit is one of his bigger uh, disco records. Chocolate Chip is one of his albums.
0: Okay, so now I, uh, as far as funk goes, I had no more of like. George Clinton Parliament Funkadelic something like that. So and to me I always just sort of uh, equated him with a, a more disco-y sound. So where does he fall in with uh, where, where is his sound? I mean is he does he sound like Barry White? I mean does he does he go weird spoken word things like George Clinton is he that's actually
1: that's a really good question, because I guess one of the points that I wanted to make is that it was a big leap for me to go from funk to this, because even as much as I love funk, I'd always kind of stayed away from soul music, because soul music to me was always very slow, very dirge-like, and just didn't have much of appeal to me. Well, the vast majority of Isaac Hayes' classic period music is slow and dirge-like, and I can't get enough of it. Huh. Uh, Barry White is probably... A good correlation because, you know, Barry also kind of had that that lover man persona. Mm -hmm. Um, The way I've heard it described, though, is that uh, Barry White's sexuality was a little bit safe. And with Isaac Hayes, he was just kind of like the, you know, the black man dingo kind of in your face sort of a thing. And so it was not as palatable to a white audience, I guess.
2: Hmm.
1: Uh, He does a lot of spoken word stuff, but it's Mm -hmm. not... It was palatable to my parents. <laughs> <laughs> he was palatable to your parents. Yes, I'm not sure what that says about your mom, but uh, he does spoken word stuff. But it's not it's not like um, the precursor to rapping, which I, that's what I correlate a lot of George Clinton stuff with. Yeah. It's just it's more Barry White bedroom seduction. Oh, okay.
0: Kind of stuff. So, so what are some? Good songs to to look for. I mean, you were naming albums, but like, is there quintessential songs that they should hear? Yeah,
1: I think um, "Walk On By" from the Hot Buttered Soul album. That is the Burt Bacharach song. You should listen to his cover of that. <laughs> oh yeah, that sounds. He does "Close <laughs> to You" by the Carpenters on Black Moses. <laughs> That is It's an amazing It's an amazing song I love the Chocolate Chip album The album's called Chocolate Chip There's a song on there Called Chocolate Chip And then there's The instrumental version Of Chocolate Chip And to me That album sounds like The lost soundtrack To a exploitation film That was never made mm-hmm. um, And when you th- You know Shaft the, 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 the theme song to Shaft um, Is about as funky As he gets Really And the, you know, that classic sort of wah-wah guitar, Mm -hmm. you don't hear that anywhere else. He doesn't use that in any other, in any other song.
0: So was this thing, uh, do you know if it was produced by somebody else than his normal uh, album producer? The soundtrack? Yeah. That I do
1: not know. Hmm. That's a good question. I don't know.
0: What about his, he, I remember, this was probably a while ago, but I remember you playing me, he had a comeback album. Yes. And has he done something, to anything since then? Uh, well, you know, he's, he's, he's no longer with us. Oh, he's dead. Okay, good. Um, oh. And that album,
1: Branded, was his last album of new material. When did that come out? Oh, Ugh. Nick. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say mid
0: to late 90s, but I could be totally wrong. It may have come I, out. That's it, what I was thinking. I was thinking I was, yeah, so I was thinking mid 90s.
1: He does a version of Sting's Fragile on that one that's, that's really awesome. He actually breaks it up into three tracks on the album because it's so long. It's got the, uh, it's got the introduction, then the actual song, and then the outro, and they're all. It's busted up into three tracks. You can listen to it in sections if you'd like. I think the whole thing <laughs> together is like about nine minutes long. That's another uh, big thing is like his single albums, but have four and five songs on them. Wow, I mean he's got he's got one album called Joy, and the title track is fifteen minutes.
0: That's another good one to look up, Joy.
2: Hmm.
0: And so is it, is it all singing, or is it some of the you know, uh, spoken seduction in the middle of it, or is he you know, break out a flute solo? I mean, <laughs> <laughs>
1: in other words, how does he make a song last 15 15? minutes? Yes. Just gets a damn good groove going and okay. lets it ride. Right. There are some of his songs that, that do have uh, the very first song on um, the Isaac Hayes Movement album, Starts off with like a two and a half minute <laughs> two and a half minute spoken word section. <laughs> uh oh his version of By the time I get to Phoenix by um Jimmy, Jimmy oh. Webb.
0: <laughs> no, that's by the that time you get to Arizona, sorry. <laughs> uh
1: that that that's the long version of that song is like eleven minutes, and I bet you half of it is <laughs> a spoken
0: word type of a thing. Yeah. That can get a little old, true. But you just kind of,
1: hey, it's Ike. You put up with it.
0: Oh, yeah. I've noticed that with uh, some of the uh, George Clinton stuff is that they would just sort of go off on a tangent for a while. And, you know, there'd be sort of like a, you know, musical bed while he just sort (laughs) of, you know, told you about, uh, uh, what was it, Chocolate City? Or, you know, all sorts of weird stuff and, you know, electric spanking of war babies. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, the you know, the, the, like I said, there
1: are a, a handful of, of very well-known songs where he does do that. But as for as for much as that is associated with him, he does not do it as much as people would think. Hmm. I mean, I can think of maybe three or four songs in his entire classic canon where that happens.
0: Would you say that there are maybe again drawn on my one experience of Clinton, where they seem to kind of be built as a as an album rather than like a collection of singles if he's making these things maybe 15 minute tracks are they are they really built as like I don't would say a concept album maybe but at least built as a as a one long piece rather than you know single after single
1: I'd have to say yes because I never say to myself oh I really want to listen to song X right now it's always I want to listen to this particular album, album yeah so yeah They all kind of have their own mood. The moods really don't differ that much. I mean, you could probably say, and I'm talking classic period stuff now, the entire Mm -hmm. 70s output. uh, They all pretty much have the same mood. But, my God, it's so well done. Um, Like I said, I just, once I started, I could not stop. It was like, I have to have more. (laughs) You could almost make, you know, it's like the sole equivalent of ACDC. If you like one, you'll like them all. (laughs) Uh, And some people might say, well, if all their albums sound alike, why don't you just own one album? Well, you know, you just like it so much, you'd like to hear it again.
0: (laughs) I I completely agree with that.
1: So that's Strange Obsession number one, Isaac Hayes. Um, My second one, which we will get into uh, later, also continues on the kind of 1970s theme so let's go back to you
0: all right this next one is going to uh go from last exit to miles davis so last exit is sonny shirock's band he played with bill laswell um ronald shannon jackson and peter and since it's german and i don't speak german i'm not sure how brotzman any idea no We'll call him
1: Ratwurst. <laughs> Maybe some of our German fans because everybody in Podcastville, someone from Germany downloaded the show. <laughs> Shoot us an email
0: at Mister 80s at RocketMail.com and let us know. Exactly. Wherever you are, wherever you are on the planet. We had a download from Japan, too. So uh, they, they are a, a, a noisy loud punk rock band disguised as a jazz band. What year are we talking about here? And this would be late 70s to early uh, to mid 80s. Okay. And I, again, I, I I know of them, but I don't really know how they got together. But when I started researching Sonny Chirac and... I found Last Exit. And at the time when I was doing this, which was, you know, mid-90s, they were just reviving, putting out albums. Because apparently they only had one album that I've ever found, and I actually found it as a cassette cutout bin for a dollar. And that was a studio album. But they have probably 10 live albums done from who knows where and where the tapes came from, and, you know, it's just sort of, you know, the, 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 they were reissuing or issuing these things just as I started figuring out who the hell he was. Were, they,
1: were there new original compositions, or were they just kind of uh, doing different versions of the same
0: songs? Or were they doing covers? Uh, they did their own songs. Um, one of the songs called Dick Dogs uh, was covered... Uh, was on uh, Sonny's uh, solo album, and he also did it when he did Live in New York with his Sonny Chirac band. Um, but it's almost like you, they were just sort of a jumping-off point for them to play loud, aggressive, insane jazz rock. <laughs> and as I said before, that you know uh, his solo efforts were very... Uh, had a very musical quality, very lyrical, very melodic, very fun. This, this shit was like being punched in the forehead. <laughs> <laughs> and you liked that. I do. I, I think it's insane. I mean, it's just, you know, they'll, they'll start, you know, Ronald Chan and Dra- Jackson, as we both remembered, had a very extremely well-reviewed album in Rolling Stone called Red Warrior. Mm-hmm. Which was also coming out around this period. And he is, he's a solo
1: jazz drummer who could almost be characterized as the percussion equivalent of Sonny
0: Chirac as far as his career tra- trajectory. Exactly. And he, but he's, he's really loud and aggressive as a drummer. And, it, you know, uh, Sonny was his most wildly aggressive and scronkiness. And uh, Peter, whatever your name is, Bratzman is the uh, saxophonist. And he wails and screeches like someone stepped on a cat. (laughs) And, um, and Lasswell plays bass and just flies all over the fretboards. I mean, it's just, it's almost insane how you can, uh, figure out, are they actually just, are they playing a song? Are they just all soloing at once? Tuning up. It's, (laughs) yeah. Oh, it's really crazy. But then they'll just go off and be insane, and then go back, and then they'll start doing a, a you know a four four beat, and then they'll start playing some song, and then and then it'll just go off again, and they'll just be like you know a freight train running, and I, 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 this had to be live in the studio, then wouldn't you think? Well, some of these things were live in specifically said live from somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, live from. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember any of them bar, but there's the, um, there was one that's actually called like the live cassette, which (laughs) obviously must've been released at a cassette at some point, but they all, they would play jazz festivals in Europe. And I really, really wish I would have, you know, been able to see a crowd watch these people play because (laughs) I mean, if you're watching a jazz festival and you're seeing, you know, I don't know modern times. You're seeing a, you know, uh, a Miles Davis. You're seeing a John Coltrane. I don't know. You're seeing just normal jazz, and then all of a sudden you see these people just fucking make your ears bleed. <laughs> I mean, that's just that uh, that would be awesome. And uh, to me, uh, that's uh, they're they're exciting. I mean, they are they are revolutionarily weird, exciting jazz, and. Do you know what this Peter guy's background was? Because
1: we know, we know Ronald and Sonny were jazz. We mm-hmm. know that Laswell is, kind of defies categorization and is mainly a producer. So what do we know about this Peter dude?
0: Absolutely nothing other than he was uh, considered avant-garde, which makes sense. pretty much everyone in the band was <laughs> yeah. given that title. Yeah. So I, I, it makes sense that they would all get together and make a band. I mean... <laughs> It's almost like a like a like the supergroup of weird, <laughs> and and I mean that in the best possible sense. They are uh...
1: so. What kind of mood are you in when you put this thing on?
0: Boy, I, when you're in the mood for something, uh, when I when I want to hear something that's not. That's completely insane. (laughs) I mean, it's just the so it's music to mutilate bodies too. Wow, music to watch Dexter too. I guess maybe, Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I I have so many different musical genres that I listen to. I just you know, at some point, there's always a reason to come back and listen to it again. I mean, when you when we when I when I hear uh, Miles Davis doing his fusion era, which is where this leaps to next is that it's like listening to, uh, to an improvisation, but you know where they're going to go. So it's interesting and exciting even when you've heard it, because you still kind of see something else in how they played there, you know, how they went there and where they went to after they went there. It's just, it, it, it If you like um, rock, heavy metal, you might like this. I mean, it's kind of the jazz equivalent of Cookie Monster vocals. Hmm. It is really weird and uncompromising. And uh, if you play this for 90% of the world, they'll slap you and tell you to turn that shit off. It's really obnoxious jazz
1: so sort of like heavy metal played by phds
0: yeah there you go
1: all right
0: i'm down yeah uh, then uh, i would suggest um songs but really you just need to buy an album (laughs) (laughs) which one (sighs) which one's most widely available as far as you know None of them, <laughs> Oh, really. I mean, just really. I uh, I can't say this thing appeals to more than like ten people. I mean, <laughs> it's 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 really really weird and out there, but there's enough to make you know they keep finding tapes and releasing them. I mean, when I was looking at them in the mid '90s, there was three. There was you know the uh, the '87 cassette recordings which was the apparently most widely available one because it's still available and it's on Spotify. And from there they had From the Vault, which was released in, I think, 95. As you know, I, I, It was actually like had a release date coming up as I was looking for stuff. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, well, I'll have to get that when it comes out.
1: It's always cool when you discover something new from the past and you find out, oh, my gosh, they're still active and there's something <laughs> coming out soon.
0: Yeah, that was awesome. And uh, since I've looked up them on uh, Spotify again, there's more new stuff. So, how, you know, uh, how you're going to find this stuff? Uh, Buy Spotify. <laughs> that's that's they 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 have stuff on there. Uh, I don't expect that a lot of record stores are going to carry this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amazon, you know, go online, maybe find something there. And maybe somebody's
1: got some stuff on YouTube so you can sample it. You just never know. I hope so. You just have to probably... If nothing
0: else, I should do that because I I don't really pay much attention to YouTube, but I would love to see a crowd shot of them (laughs) playing because I really want to see how the hell someone takes this.
1: YouTube's a crapshoot. You never know what you're going to find. They might not necessarily have what you're looking for or they might have like a crappy shot on a cell phone version of what you're looking for, but... It can be a good place to start. So type in Last Exit and then that's so so general, it's you're it's probably gonna right. want to type in Sonny Chirac or Bill Laswell or something along with it to just narrow down the search a little bit. Yeah, whenever I search them I always get
0: uh Pearl Jam did a song called Last Exit from Vitology, so I always see that when I'm searching. Yeah. But it's it's worth checking out. It's it, it even if you don't like it, you should at least hear it just to go, Holy crap, someone released that <laughs> There's your words of
1: wisdom For the day Holy crap Someone released that Well going back to the 1970s for me Is a gentleman that I'm so thankful that I Discovered but just he does not Fit in to My normal musical world Anywhere I was stunned i'm talking about glenn campbell i was stunned when i was actually considering buying my first glenn campbell album i'm like this is this is glenn campbell (laughs) what are you doing (laughs) all i knew about glenn campbell was he was the drunk cokehead who had the may december romance with tanya tucker back in the late 70s, early 80s. He was like 44 and she was 19 and they did drugs and smacked the shit out of each other. Wow. Uh, And he was just kind of a joke to me. It's just kind of like Glenn frickin' Campbell. He was one of those guys that was famous for being famous in my eyes. He was sort of like Zsa Zsa Gabor with a guitar. was like, (laughs) oh, look, it's Glenn Campbell. And uh, one of the radio stations that I worked at played old people music and... His three big hits with uh, songwriter Jimmy Webb were in regular rotation. Uh, Galveston, Wichita Lineman, and By the Time I Get to Phoenix. And uh, over the years, Wichita Lineman has, it had just burrowed its way into my head. And a, a, a year or so ago, it was in there, and I couldn't get it out. And I was just like, I was doing some reading up on it and about, you know, reading about Glenn Campbell's relationship with Jimmy Webb because Jimmy Webb was strictly a songwriter. He wrote a lot of songs that Glenn Campbell performed. Uh, Jimmy Webb wrote for other artists and even other artists were recording and releasing these songs as Glenn Campbell was. But it always kept coming back to the fact that Glenn Campbell pretty much ended up recording what was widely accepted as the definitive versions of these songs written by Jimmy Webb. Hmm. So it started with that. It started with, uh, okay, let me lay my hands on some stuff that Jimmy Webb wrote, that Glenn Campbell performed. It just so happens there is a CD out there that compiled, I don't even know if it was all, but about 20 hmm. of the songs throughout Glenn's entire career. Um, that Jimmy Webb had written and Campbell had recorded. And um, it just blew the top of my head off. I was just like, wow, there is a lot more to this guy than Wichita Lineman. And it just sort of evolved from there. Now, in hindsight, what is very strange, of course, is that in the last few months, we have discovered that Glenn Campbell was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And he has released what he says is going to be his final studio album and is embarking on his farewell tour and was kind of back in the news after being dormant for a very long period of time. And so it was very strange that this artist that had been around for a very long time that I was just now starting to get into just because of my own volition now all of a sudden was being talked about in the press again. <laughs> and you know, I was able to read about him and there was actually a fantastic feature article about him uh, shortly after uh, he went public with the diagnosis in Rolling Stone magazine, of all places. That's probably the best profile that I have read um, of him. And Tom Petty said something in that interview that really kind of resonated with me, which is that Glenn Campbell has never been cool. <laughs> it's never been cool to oh. like Glenn Campbell. But his songs are so good That it just doesn't matter <laughs> And that's kind of where I am at With it And so this this whole Glenn Campbell, Jimmy Webb fascination Led into an exploration Of his entire career And you know, his his commercial heyday Was in the 70s And you know, Everybody remembers Rhinestone Cowboy And Southern Knights That's probably from 77 to 79 The period that we're talking about there and uh he, the more that i found out about him he really was country by default and i think that might be why i like it because it doesn't even though he was always on the country charts he was definitely considered a country artist mm-hmm. uh He's really more country politan than anything else. Which country politan was that sub genre of country that was popular in the late seventies, where a lot of songs were kind of crossing over. One of the like kings, Kenny Rogers, Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton. One of the unsung kings of country politan is a fella named uh, Charlie Rich, not Charlie Pride. You're thinking of the only black guy that records country music. If you're thinking <laughs> Charlie Pride, this was Charlie Rich. His nickname was the Silver Fox, and his big hit was "Behind." Not Clo- big and rich. <laughs> no. "Behind Closed Doors," hmm. which I would hum a few bars, but I don't want to get charged any money by BMI or ASCAP, so I won't. Uh, but so it was, it was more of a uh, an adult pop influenced style of country. That is what Glenn excelled at. But you know his roots were in rock. He was a member of the uh, Beach Boys touring band for a while when. Um, when Brian first went off his rocker and stopped touring, Glen Campbell was the replacement before Bruce Johnston. Um, for singing or just playing guitar? Playing guitar and, and singing parts of the harmonies. He's an excellent vocalist, an excellent guitar player, uh, an excellent interpreter of songs. An excellent interpreter of songs. Like Isaac Hayes. And mm-hmm. and Sinatra. You know, the way Sinatra can take a lyric and make it sound like it was written just for him, mm-hmm. he's really got that that gift. And... I just never in a million years thought that I would end up going down Glen Campbell Avenue. <laughs> and it still shocks me. Uh, but I just get endless enjoyment out of his music. And I've uh, I've got stuff from all facets of his career, from the early days in the 60s all the way up to his brand new album, Ghost on the Canvas, which just came out. So,
0: What would you say is your favorite era from 60s on up? I mean... I th- my my of- my favorite album with his that I've got it's a
1: it's a twofer that's uh, available from Australia, and it's got the album "Rhinestone Cowboy" and the album "Bloodline" plus a couple of bonus tracks on one CD. So we're talking about maybe seventy seven, seventy eight, <laughs> and that's my my favorite Glenn Campbell CD that I own. <laughs> the new album though is freaking awesome. Uh, the new album has got songwriting help from. Uh, Paul Westerberg, uh, Jimmy Corgan, uh, Billy Billy Corgan. Corgan, Billy Corgan. Billy um, Corgan wrote a track on there. And the production really reminds me a lot of kind of uh, the, the the production Jeff Lynn was doing for Tom Petty during like the Traveling Wilburys era. Mm. So if you're a fan of that kind of. Not the sparse Rick Rubin for John U. Cash production. Right. Um. <clears throat> And, and you know that 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 era of Petty definitely had sort of a country influence, so it kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I keep telling people that if if you like Full Moon Fever, if you like Into the Great Wide Open by the Heartbreakers, if you like the Traveling Wilburys album, you're probably going to like the new
0: Glenn Campbell album. Interesting. That uh, just because you remind me of that, I picked up a, a CD in a cutout bin, and I think the artist's name was Juliana Ray. Okay, and it was produced by. Jeff Lynn. And it it sounded like they like they took tracks that they didn't use for like Tom Petty and just brought her in to sing like he like she was his girlfriend and he was like, Oh honey here, just use this. It's a you know it's an old track, just go for it and we'll put out an album. Because it, it sounded way too much like uh, like 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 uh, Tom Petty's era, you know, Jeff Lynn produced stuff. So it's not like that. It actually sounds more like it has the production quality, but it isn't like they just sort of cut Tom Petty out and stuck Glen Campbell in, I assume.
1: No, and it, it doesn't have that it's not quite as Birds influenced as that era of the Jeff Lynn productions was, but it's it's very similar. And it's kind of the closest correlation that I can draw. Okay. I know the the 70s period um a lot of a lot of times uh well I've heard it described and i thought this was a great description listening to glenn campbell in the 70s is like watching an episode of the rockford files which i thought was a very interesting way to put it interesting and i think that it's apropos when i think of the 1970s and you know again i'm shocked that i've gotten into music from the 70s because being born in the 70s raised in you know, the early years in the 70s and then i really felt like the 80s was the decade that was made for me and when i think of the 70s i bet you it's the exact same stuff that you think of i think of brown plaid mm-hmm. i think of really big collars yeah um i just i think of economic and political turmoil uh and i just think of an ugly period that we need to forget about <laughs> um but within all of that, there is still a popular culture that is very worth exploring, which is where Glenn Campbell fits in, where black exploitation films fit in, where Isaac Hayes fits in. There's just, I, I had wrongly ignored that period for far too long, and I'm finding a lot of stuff that's, that's really cool to explore in there.
0: Speaking of, uh, just off a mild tangent, do you have Netflix? I do not. Okay. There was a, uh, a thing I put on my queue recently that I want to see. I think it's called American Grindhouse, maybe, and it was supposed to be something about the the history of the grindhouse and the exploitation era of film. Uh-huh. I was just curious. Like a documentary?
1: It. Yeah. No, I have
0: not. Hmm.
1: So I think I've said my piece about Glenn Campbell. Just just a, an amazing artist and much more than the guy who used to slap around Tanya
0: Tucker. There's a lot more to the guy than that. I'll have to check out the uh, Ghost on the Canvas. Oh, what, what about? Uh, are there any maybe not the seventies area that you mentioned, but anything from sixties or eighties that people might want to check out?
1: There is pretty much anything he did with Webb. You know, I mean, I think most people know Wichita Lineman and, and Galveston. And Probably
0: know it if I heard it, but and, I'm, I'm sure that that you would
1: yeah. uh, One song that you must hear, and it's it's actually from the eighties. But Jimmy Webb wrote it. It's uh, it's a song called Still Within the Sound of My Voice that uh, the first time I heard it, it nearly brought me to tears. It was just, I'm like, holy crap, where has this song been all my life? <laughs> so if you do anything after listening to this show, try to find somewhere where you can sample Still Within the Sound of My Voice by Glenn Campbell. It just... It blew the top of my head off. It was just—it was just an amazing experience to hear that song for the first time. Sometimes I will play it in my office. I'll close the door so I don't annoy people. I'll play it ten times in a row.
0: <laughs> so. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Um, for my thing, uh, I'm going into uh, Miles Davis, as you can tell from the theme of these things, is uh, the fusion jazz rock era. That they all sort of uh, meld together. Uh, Miles Davis obviously can't really be a strange obsession because he is, you know, one of the preeminent jazz artists of our time. But, (laughs) (laughs) again, as when I was, you know, when I started listening to Sonny Chirac and I moved on to Last Exit, uh, you know, that was fusion, but people didn't really. Uh, it was the, it was the farthest end of fusion, so I wanted to go you know see what the beginning of fusion was and the beginning of fusion from what I can tell is Miles Davis. <laughs> so he, he, uh, he did uh, in a silent way and Philly's Day Kilimanjaro and apparently those are named usually as the the intro to fusion. So not bitches brew well the those were the two albums right before it so those were um improvisational but not really electrified when you get to bitches brew that's when he uh pulls in you know electric guitars heavy electric guitars heavy uh electrified organ from uh, Corea, and that you know pretty much is the first fusion album but these ones are the the precursors the intros to it how did they get there the on ramp exactly and again if you if you don't listen to jazz then you might just think oh well it's just it's still just jazz you know i mean i've heard electric guitars playing jazz it's still the same thing this really is different i mean to me you've heard bitches brew
1: it's funny because that's one of those records when I was a kid that kept showing up on the 100 best albums of all time oh, yeah. or whatever. And so I did actually, uh, I think, my God, I think I actually checked it out of the library and I listened <laughs> to it. And my ears were not fully developed at the time. I'm not even sure that I was 20 years old yet when I listened to it. And I was just like, what in the hell is this shit? <laughs>
0: yes. And, and from what I've read, that was the reaction of... uh jazz people um which is to me very interesting i mean uh, you know uh when i look on this thing and and in mid 90s and read about what they said about it when these albums came out in between basically like 69 and 72 uh are all these uh, fusion albums from miles davis and the jazz reviewers hated it because it wasn't jazz enough, but it wasn't rock enough to get on rock radio. Uh, From what, again, from what I read, Miles Davis was seeing the success of Jimi Hendrix and the success of Sly and the Family Stone. And he wanted to get, um, the, the black youth who was listening to those records and get them interested in jazz. So he wanted to find a way to bridge the gap between jazz and rock, but still make it jazz enough that, you know, that they would know it's jazz and not just, you know, uh, a rip off of a rock record. So there's, you know, it's a jazz album, but it's, you know, as he moves into the seventies, it becomes more funk and he gets three guitarists going and they all have a very Hendrix-like influence in there. He gets, you know, three percussionists. I mean, he just really ends up making this, you know, like 20-man band of jazz, funk, rock.
1: Well, you know, Bitches Brew uh, was not very compositional. It was very freeform. Oh, yes. That's how I recall it. Now, I remember uh, I remember uh, Phil's To Kill mm-hmm. That one definitely had more of a compositional aspect to it. Oh, yes. And you had back in the '90s, I think it was, some label had put out, I think, an official bootleg of some live album from Japan. It was one of the first Digipak yep. albums. Um, what was the title of that thing? That was uh, Dark Magus. Magnus. Dark. Magnus. Yeah, Dark Magnus. Dark Mangus. Something Magnus. like that. That was an excellent. That was an excellent album for me. That I mean, I liked that a hundred times better than Bitches Brew. Dark Magus, M a g u s. Live at Carnegie, because that seemed to really uh, he was you know still being very freeform, but it also it had more of a. In this, I'm kind of working from memory here, but it it had it had something to kind of keep you interested, whether it was a consistent beat or whether it was a consistent melody line. I mean, mm-hmm. it just it was it was weird, but it it seemed like it had a point. Exactly, is that a fair
0: statement? Oh yes, I, I bitches brew, was uh, is. is in hindsight, looked as, you know, where it started. But I really think that that was still more jazz than where he ends up. Uh, When he goes farther into this uh, exploration, like the Dark Magus and uh, the two that I would suggest are the preeminent versions of what he did. One is called Agartha, A-G-H-A-R-T-A, and the other is called Pangea, which is... What's the used to be the the name for what the world was when it was all one piece?
1: Yes, Pan, Pangea is from that that theory that at one point in the earth's history it was all one continent and then it broke up to form the continents we have today. So Pangea is one single continent that's made up of the existing continents. There's a lot of exactly. things you can find online where they show how the borders of the current continents fit together like puzzle pieces to I don't know if it's one of those no. things that's scientifically accepted, but it's it's a word. Yeah, Pangea. It's P-A-N-G-E-A, I think.
0: Yes. P A N G.
1: You had that one. I think I remember A-E-A. listening to that one, too. Yes. And I was just always amazed at how much I liked everything but
0: Bitches Brew. And, and, and that's the that's, one everybody talks about. Exactly. That's why if, you if you're hearing this and you're thinking, oh, well, I've heard Bitches Brew. I've heard it. I absolutely think you have not heard it because uh, and this was a review on Spotify of uh, Agartha, which is, they're both done on the same night. Agartha, Agartha and, and, and Pangea were done on one night, although released within, you know, months of each other. But the, the review of this thing calls Agartha the greatest electric funk rock jazz record ever made, period. Mm-hmm. And I can't really disagree with that. I it, it's it's awesome. Uh, Pete Cozy, as he uh, is calling this thing, is, uh, is Hendrix influenced and incalculable guitar slinging gifts. I mean, he really has you know that kind of uh, Hendrixian you know wah infected you know heavily uh, overdriven sound that you would you would think. And I think that's where due to Miles Davis's statement that he was trying to get the Hendrix crowd to like jazz. He, you know, went out of his way to try and get that sound and then put it into a jazz album. And in these two, he did it better than he did ever. I mean, I think all of these things, uh, that he did and there was a ridiculously large output. I mean, he did all of these live albums and released them on LP and apparently, from what I've read, in the, U- in the United States, they did shit. Reviewers hated them. They didn't get played enough on rock records, uh, on rock radio stations to ever get noticed. So they all ended up being released in Japan. <laughs> and Japan loved it. Miles Davis's fusion period. Big in Japan. Yes, huge in Japan. And that's, you know, like when, in 95, these things were all available only in Japan. I mean they'd been released on CD by Sony Music only available in Japan. And it wasn't until again <laughs> that that mid-90s period where they finally, you know, Sonny Sharrock became popular, Bill Laswell had done a uh electronica dub remix of Miles Davis's fusion period which was called and I, I might get this wrong, Parthenalansa Parthenalea Lansing the Boyle. Yeah, and it, it's uh, wonderful, I think. I, I think it's, you know, the wonderful mix of electronica and jazz fusion.
1: I got but, one, I got. One, go ahead, finish no, your thought. Ahead. I got one quick hit for you. Have we ever figured out what a Magus is?
0: I, no, I have no idea.
1: Um, we're both saying that we think Bitches Brew is not all that it's cracked up to be?
0: It's kind of like... I remember the first time I watched Citizen Kane, I was with you <laughs> and I'm watching halfway through the movie and I'm like, I'm sorry, this is the greatest movie ever. <laughs> but then you look at it again and you go, okay, wait, all the things that I see in this, all the techniques, all the concepts, all of the storytelling and the shots that everybody has been using for the last 50 years were first done there. And then you go, okay, I get it it's great because he influenced everybody else. So bitches brew influenced everybody. If you hear it, you then hear the influences of, as I'll talk to in a minute, Mahavishnu orchestra and weather report. But then you also just sort of hear, you know, how rock changes and jazz changes from that. So it's great because of what it led to. But as far as, for me listening, I like the later periods later when he really started going jazz funk. So it's more significant as a
1: historical document than exactly. really
0: as something to sit down and listen to.
1: And then the final thing I wanted to, to ask you about this is uh, we didn't really ever define you know jazz fusion because we assume people know what it means. In the early days, what it meant was a fusion of... Jazz and rock. It later came to also mean a fusion of jazz, funk, and rock. Then it kind of turned into basically jazz plus whatever was fusion. <laughs> what I'm curious to know, though, is that the period that Miles is doing this, even though he is using Hendrix and uh, Sly and the Family Stone as the sources that he is citing publicly, I've got to wonder how much he was influenced by prog rock because these things are running parallel paths. <laughs> And I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that, because when you think about this era, late 60s, early 70s, we're talking ELP, we're talking Yes, that's all over rock radio.
0: Oh, yeah. That's, that, well, Hmm. I hadn't thought of it by, like that, but I definitely think that there's got to be a uh, mutual influence there. I, I assume that there... Well, the the proggiest uh, parts of uh, of those bands probably don't get as much airplay. I mean, you're not going to get, you know, uh, a 12-part composition from Rush on, you know, rock radio, but you'll get, you know, Fly By Night. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to get, you know, uh, a 17-minute composition from Yes, but you'll get, you know, Round and Round. So I'm... I would say it definitely has, you know, uh, a flavor of prog rock to it because it is. When I listen to jazz, I don't, uh, I don't listen to it, to it as a study. I don't know uh, all of the chords and I don't know all of the progressions that they do. I just listen to something that sounds good to me, mm-hmm. and I, I in the same way I listen to prog rock. I mean, you know, if I'm listening to anything from King Cribson to uh, some of the proggier versions of Iron Maiden, you know, I I, I don't listen for, ooh, ooh, they, they changed to 7.8, <laughs> Oh You know, <laughs> <laughs> but if it, you know, I, I think that they, uh, I like when a band can go the extra mile and explore somewhere different. And I definitely say that both of these, prog rock and miles's jazz fusion have a hell of a lot in common
2: okay we'll just but on.
0: i've never i've never read anything that uh he'd mentioned other bands like uh like a king crimson which king crimson would have been a, a really good one i mean i think their first album was 69 with uh 20th century schizoid man and all, yeah, which just, would have been the exact same time as Bitches Brew, yeah. Okay, that's good. I was just just kind of curious on your hmm. your thoughts on that. If you're wrapped up with uh, with um, that, yeah, with, go with, see with Miles, Agartha and Pangea. But there are,
1: uh, I would highly recommend Dark Tone. Magus. Yeah, that, that I need to, I need to get that record. That was a great album. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, so I will move on then and man, we're we're really talk, one oh eight. Talking a long what's that? one oh eight. Yeah, we're talking a long time about our strange obsessions and <laughs> We're uh, so obsessed we can't even stop talking I about know. it. I <laughs> know. I don't really want to break this up into two shows, so I guess we'll just do one supersized show. Um, King Sonny a Day. Um, King Sonny a Day plays a style of music Uh, From Nigeria. It's Nigerian pop music. It is called juju Which is J.U.J.U. like the theater snack not (laughs) like you are hurling a racial epithet at someone and I can tell you exactly how I got into this. It's because I bought a when we were down at that big bookstore in Columbus Mm
2: -hmm.
1: big independently owned bookstore I mean, Uh, village bookshop looks like it was like an old library, I think had like two stores, two floors, didn't it? Yep. And I found a uh, an 80s record guide by Robert Christgau, who is this very snarky, clippy little. I guess he wrote (laughs) a lot for the village voice. He wrote some for Rolling Stone. Uh, He writes these little tiny like one paragraph long Reviews of records, which typically I like my record reviews a bit longer, but uh, he reviewed a lot of King Sonny a Day albums, and that's where I kind of got into it and trying to des- i mean trying to describe juju music to uh, American ears is really hard, and I can't even explain to you why I like it. Uh, everybody talks about how he fuses African rhythms with Western guitar sounds. I think that's total bullshit. I don't hear any Western influence in this music anywhere. <laughs> it's kind of, it's really funny to me because when uh, Bob Marley died in 81, uh, King Sonny got signed to Island Records, which was Marley's label, because Chris Blackwell, the owner of Island, thought for sure that King Sonny A Day was going to be the next Bob Marley. And I can't figure out for the life of me why he would think that, because for one thing, it's not reggae. the lyrics are not in English, <laughs> and it's you know Marley um pretty much followed your same you know your typical verse chorus bridge versus mm-hmm. you know song structure. I just it blows my mind that a guy that owned a record label thought <laughs> that this was going to translate well to the American public uh King Sonny Adé has been making records since at least the 60s. He's one of those guys that people say he's put out 500 albums. I mean, how is that humanly possible? (laughs) I don't know. Um, But there's probably a good 20 of them that are available here in the West. Uh, He wears African garb. Uh, He's known for having like 20 people up on stage. Yes, there's electric guitars. He's got one album where they it's called Synchro System which came out in 83 and people were talking about the pop synthesizers that he put on it. And I've got that album and I listened to it and I'm like, what are they talking about? There's no pop (laughs) synthesizers on here. Maybe there's a synthesizer, but I mean, it's, it's no, there is no identifiable melody as you and I would define melody. And the songs can be six minutes long. They can be 20 minutes long.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, He does have one record. um, It's called Udo, where every song is like under four minutes. uh, And that's actually one of my least favorite. I really kind of like the long workouts. Uh, But I just don't, I listen to this stuff and it just, I am transported. (laughs) I listen to this music and I'm transported. Uh, People talk about it's very happy music, has a very positive vibe. Mm -hmm. I pick up on that. But for all I know, the lyrics could be about oppression and, you know, people having AIDS and stuff. Because like I said, it's all in whatever language they speak in Nigeria. It's not in English. Nigeria? Uh, I, I don't know.
0: <laughs> I don't either. Uh, and it's just
1: Someone one from of those, there, please.
0: It's, right it's, it.
1: it's one of those things. I can't explain to you why I like it, but I've got 12 of his albums. Damn. Okay. <laughs> Must be something good. So it's it's definitely a strange obsession. It's really hard to categorize. It's 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 very African, mm-hmm. very very African, uh, and I think that if you were to listen to some of it, uh, you're either going to like it on its own terms, but you're not you're not going to listen to it and go, oh yeah, that kind of reminds me of. <laughs> <laughs> And it's also cool because since his, his last name is Ade, which is spelled A-D-E, so if you don't put the little thingy on the end, his name looks like King Sunny-Aid, which I think is an awesome name for a summertime beverage. <laughs> I think somebody should market a beverage <laughs> called King Sunny-Aid. Doesn't that sound delicious? It just sounds so refreshing. Mm, like a summer day. It's, I want to go sit out on my front porch and enjoy the 80-degree weather with a nice sparkling glass of King Sunny-Aid. <laughs> So that's all I got to say about that.
0: Well, now, I remember I bought a cassette that he had somebody, there was somebody else that was doing juju music. And it was a blue cassette with a guy on there. And whoever it was, I played it for you and you were like, eh. <laughs> but I from what I remember of it, it was... It was like the pop version of the of the Juju music because it actually had like a five minute, three minute pop structure to oh, yeah. it. I was just curious if you maybe remembered who that was because I have no idea who it was. I have but. no
1: freaking idea. I don't even know who uh Yeah I, I, going off on a little bit of a mini tangent, you know, I I got into uh, Fela Kuti uh recently. Um hmm, F E L A, K U T I. Okay. And he's another one of those big African artists. And I, I try not to be a xenophobe as I'm getting into this world music. I try not to say I try to be cognizant of the fact that King Sunny Day is from Nigeria and Nigeria is a country on the African continent. And so music that comes from a different country on the African continent is not necessarily going to sound like music from Nigeria. <laughs> and so I went into it with ears and eyes open when I got into Fela Kuti. But I thought for sure there was at least going to be some kind of a spillover, you know?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Fela Kuti is uh, funk jazz. Really? Fela Kuti doesn't sound African to me at all, except for, you know, the lyrics are often in a language I can't understand. But as far as the songs and stuff, it just it sounds like jazz funk. It's good. I like it a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does not sound nearly as as hardcore African as King Sonny Day does to me. So
0: hmm. I remember buying a lot of, uh, well, a few world music albums and, but I, I haven't listened to any of them so long and I, I can't even remember the names of any of them. Yeah. <laughs> but to juju King sunny a day.
1: And really world music is, I guess, become, has become an outmoded term. I guess they don't even use it anymore. Oh yeah. that, that I don't right.
0: know what they call it. <laughs> World, uh, international? I don't know. Hmm.
2: Yeah, so
1: every be time be. I call it world music, I'm dating myself.
0: <laughs> well, there seemed to be that mid-90s, yeah. Can you tell I listened to a lot of music in the mid-90s? <laughs> <laughs> I was working at a music store, I was allowed. <laughs> but yeah, that, that was when I, when I was, you know, we we had a world music section and the world music was encompassing pretty much anything that was outside of the u.s Sorry. yeah if it, it <laughs> wasn't like
1: released it. in canada
0: or america I probably would have been we put Canada over there too you know celine dion fucker
1: <laughs> so you're going to talk about my man jan
0: hammer jan hammer was uh in uh was he in my he was okay good I, I i wasn't exactly sure i knew that so while Nick is getting his <laughs>
1: thoughts ready, I'm kind of stepping on him here, but he's going to be talking about Mahavishnu Orchestra, which is a fusion group who had uh, as a member Jan Hammer, or Jan Hammer, or Jan Hammer, or however you want to pronounce it. <laughs> and the reason he would be near and dear to Mr. 80's heart, and the reason you might know him, <laughs> is because for three of Miami Vice's five seasons, he wrote the score and wrote the theme song and added a lot of memorable music to the popular
0: culture in the 80s flavor and um he he did the Miami Vice theme song right yeah so I mean that's if you ever watched a uh uh, gosh what would it be the the free throw shooting competitions in the uh in the shootout yes when when they would have the the three-point competitions they would use the Miami Vice theme song as their because it was uh, exactly 60 seconds exactly (laughs) so if you were not of the 80s but maybe of the 90s you might know it from that so uh, this is one of the uh, offshoots of Miles Davis's fusion period is that the people he played with said hey this is fun let me go start my own band and then Miles <laughs> never spoke to them again, right? Yes, probably. Because he's a big prick. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd love to know, you know, uh, what he, more of what he was like. I should go read a biography by him. <laughs> Apparently was he was like trying to hug a porcupine.
2: Yeah.
0: I, I, I get that from what, you know, what I've read of him. And, uh, yeah, but I, I was listening to somebody who was a comedian and telling he who was friends with him. Uh, I won't go off on a tangent because I don't remember enough the details but uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra was uh, John McLaughlin McLaugh, McLaugh, I shouldn't remember how to pronounce it the name. guy from the McLaughlin, McLaughlin group McLaugh- yeah it is McLaughlin sorry I never have to say his own name so I <laughs> um, I was kidding it's not the guy from the McLaughlin no, group good lord no <laughs> although I'd love to hear what he would do for a band no he really wouldn't <laughs> Mahavishnu Orchestra
1: which how the hell do you spell that it's two words right
0: no no well Mahavishnu is all one word yes M-A-H-A-V-I-S-H-N-U God that's a mouthful it sounds it sounds like it sounds like something from the east oh yeah it definitely is if I wish I'm probably not going to be able to find the thing that tells you what the hell the name of the album is Um, but it means something like inner peace I mean, oh. it's an actual uh, Middle Eastern term, like a Hindu word.
1: Yes. That wouldn't be Middle Man. East. We're aware of that. Thank you.
0: <laughs> just correcting for all the people in the audience going, that's not Middle East. We know. Well, I'm an American. Everything outside of my borders is somewhere else. Nice. Uh, hey, you know. And that's, everybody that's from that's Japan very, and <laughs> Germany <what>? and Australia, <laughs> just stop listening. <laughs> oh, come on. They, they know this. They, they, that's how they think about us already. So I'm just perpetuating the stereotypes. Uh, Mahavishnu, he was, um, with Miles Davis, apparently he was playing on uh, live evil, uh, which is the live album that was done from the bitches brew, uh, studio album. And even though they did it like on three nights and, uh, McLaughlin was there for one night that's the night they chose to release on an album. So, so it sounds like, oh, well he's been with, you know, Miles Davis and you did all things. No, he was there for one night, mm. but it was enough to influence him to say, Hey, I should go do my own jazz rock band. And from, again, what I've read of this, he wanted to do a rock band. You know, he basically wanted it to be, you know, a the, the structure of rock, but with jazz musicians. So if you have you listened to Mahavishnu Orchestra?
1: I, a long time ago, had a compilation record called Meltdown that had some fusion on it, and there was one Mahavishnu track on it. Mm. And I listened to it, and it sounded a lot more contemporary than I thought that it would. Uh, and I think at this point, I didn't even know Jan was in the group. And so I, when I you know Mahavishnu, I really was expecting it to have like an Eastern kind of a sound. It did not. uh, That's really all I remember about it.
0: He's a guitarist. He plays electric guitar, and it's, I would say, it's kind of like a, you know, a, a jazz version of like Satriani. I mean, he's very, very good, very technical you know, has a very good sound to his, to his playing. And, you know, unlike a Sonny Chirac, you know, he's very, uh, clean and melodic. And they have a lot of really, uh, and as you were making the point of prog rock, I would say this is almost like instrumental prog rock more than it is, um, jazz. Yeah. I mean, it really has a good, uh, if you like rock music, if you like prog rock music, you're probably going to like this. That's a lot more accessible. Exactly. There's the word I was looking for accessible. It has a very accessible sound. I mean, even with miles, uh, his albums as you, you know, as most of them were recorded live, they were in some part improvisational where they're just, you know, running on a theme and going with it. And these are song structures there's you know there seems to be beginning, middle, and end, or at least more of that than definitely anything that miles' fusion area was doing. so it's really more of an accessible sound. You could hear this on well if if jazz was ever played as anything other than uh smooth rock or you know some smooth jazz, if they actually had a jazz station that played uh more than more than that they would play they could play this on there yeah. I and mean, it's it's jazz, but it's also accessible, and they have like the oh you know that there was one that I did not know about that i I have yet to listen to, but I found uh let me make a quick pitch for Spotify if you're listening to us and you want to listen to all the things we're talking about. I use Spotify during the show and for all the prep for this stuff, because everything that we were talking about is on Spotify. So you can, you know, join it for like five or 10 bucks a month and listen to everything. So on Spotify, I had not heard of an album that John did with, uh, Santana. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's something I'm going to have to listen to because <laughs> they're doing a cover of like a Love Supreme and uh, John Coltrane, you know, mm-hmm. Aima Meditation. So, boy. That, Which is cool. funny
1: since uh, Neil Sean used to be with Santana and Hammer recorded an album with Sean. Oh, really? Sean and Hammer, it was called. And it had like a takeoff on the Arm and Hammer logo on the front. How re- how long ago or recently? Or? That was the 80s.
2: Huh.
1: Is it good? Have you heard it? I do not. No, I've not heard it. Hmm. I just think it's interesting that, you know, you got two members of Mahavishnu that are recording <laughs> albums with
0: members of Santana. Well, they must have been friends. That's got to be the connection. Maybe they opened for each other. Well, yeah. The, apparently Santana, or uh, Journey was more Prague in the early days before oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Perry, Steve Perry. 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 That, that's one of those things I've never listened to pre-Steve Perry journey?
1: I haven't either. I know their, uh, uh, their, their first vocalist, because you know Greg Rowley you know, kind of took over as the vocalist, but their very first vocalist, I think he was only on the first album, was some guy named George. <laughs> <laughs> George. Not that there's anything wrong with being named George. It just <laughs> isn't what you would expect.
0: Yeah. Hmm. I'll have to check that out. Um, so anyway, they, Mahavishnu has a bunch of, uh, albums, maybe, uh, eight or nine and they have, you know, from mid seventies on into the, uh, mid eighties and they have a lot of different lineup changes. The constant is always John McLaughlin and he is... Uh, he's even started releasing albums Uh, another one of those things I found on Spotify that I didn't know about is it looks like they he has taken on Doing covers of his own stuff with new band people.
1: I was just getting ready to say, if and, since this seems to be McLaughlin's baby, oh yeah. if you think that there is a reconstituted Mahavishnu with like one dude that's sixty five, John McLaughlin, and a bunch of side men who are in their twenties playing like in the Holiday Inn <laughs> banquet room wherever John McLaughlin lives now, and the big sign says like Welcome Mahavishnu Orchestra.
0: I can absolutely see
2: that. <laughs> Because I mean, it
0: sounds like that's what this guy did. This is uh there's two albums here. One of them, there's a volume one and two on here called Mahavishnu Redefined. And it lists you know, it's listed as John McLaughlin with various artists, and it lists who the artists are. So again, haven't listened to it yet, but if it's, you know, him it seems like it's him doing covers of his own stuff. But hey, I I I like Hearing people who go back to their catalog and then you know maybe find a new way to do something that they liked before. I mean, I know people give a lot of shit to Clapton when he redid Layla, but I liked the redone 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 version of Layla. It's never That's after gonna, this kid fell out the window. Yeah. with the acoustic yes. version, and it's never going to be as good. I love, I love that album Layla and other resorted love songs. And it's, you know, I love that song. It's never going to be any better than that. But it's interesting to at least hear him, you know, do something different to that. And I always appreciate hearing what artists like to do with their catalog when they go back to it.
1: All right. So, so is this is this concluding our supersized edition? How, how, what, are, what time? Are we like an hour and a half now?
0: Um, just, oh, yeah,
1: hour 28. Oh, my God. If you've stuck with us till the end, you're obviously just a music fan. God bless y'all. I'm sure we probably lost most people at the 40-minute mark, which is too bad because they missed a lot of good stuff. So we need to direct you to our Facebook page, which is Mr. 80s. I got to do all the spelling for you again, M-I-S-T-E-R. We are not doing MR period because some dorkus at WordPress got to it first. So (laughs) we're spelling out Mr. M-I-S-T-E-R then 80s is 80s, no apostrophe, and it's not spelled out. Type in Mr. 80s on Facebook. You can find our Facebook page. You can like us. Then you'll never miss a link. Anytime that there's a new show, we will let you know. You can visit the blog, which is Mr80s.wordpress.com. And if you have an idea for the show... You can either send it to us through the Facebook page, you know, post it on the wall, or you can email it to us at Mr80s
0: at RocketMail.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a comment. Rate us. Five stars is always appreciated. (laughs) And good night, M. Emmett Walsh, wherever you are.